Well, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into our study. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that um, it never turns back void, that uh, it teaches us, and that it's the discerner, Lord, of our intentions, that it reveals um, in us, Lord, our need for you. Um, it gives us clarity. It shines light on the sin of our lives, God, and thank you for your grace and mercy that allows us to come to you, and thank you, Lord, for uh, each and every person here. Father, um, just teach us today. I pray that uh, you would bind the enemy and any demonic presence, powers, or influences in the name of Jesus, that you would um, just wash over us, God, if there's anything in our lives that might hinder us from hearing from you, Lord God. If there's any, uh, anything in the way, God, just ask that you would just uh, remove those things, Lord. Just help us to, to uh, uh, just hear from you today, God. May we not miss uh, what you have for us today, Lord. I just pray for those that aren't feeling well, that couldn't make it today, that you would bring healing to their bodies. Lord, thank you um, that we're here today. I just pray for... Um, my friend Theo in El Salvador, Lord, that you would be with him and the, their family as missionaries, and, and also for uh, Benjamin in Ukraine. And uh, Lord, pray for uh, Rolf, who's in Germany, that you would be with these missionaries, God, that you've connected us with, God, that you would just pour your spirit out upon them, that you would use them mightily, that you'd provide for them financially, Lord. And uh, thank you that, you, that uh, you're at work, even sometimes when we don't see it, Lord. Uh, just thank you for the text that we're going to read today, and uh, just praise you and give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're continuing through the book of John, and then, uh, Lord willing, it won't take forever, and then uh, we get to take communion together. So for a while there, we were doing communion every so often, and then I was like, you know, this just needs to be on the calendar, so we're, we're going to do communion on the first Sunday of every month, so. Um, but picking up in John chapter 1, verse 21, I'm sorry, verse 2, chapter 2, 1 John 2, uh, verse 1 through 29, um, John continues and writes, he says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, verse 2, and he himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. We could stop right there and just relish in the fact that Jesus himself uh, is our advocate, that he uh, advocates for us, that he is our propitiation. I was thinking as I was studying and, and preparing, I'm like, man, we could just live in John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 forever. Um, there's so much just in those first two verses, and it's amazing how God shows us who Jesus is. Um, John's writing where he says, my little children, um, it, it, it is not addressing them as kids, but as dear family. It's an enduring type of, of statement. And so um, in the translation, uh, we kind of, we get the, the, the words little children, but it's really dear family is how he's writing this. So he's writing this again. We know that, that John is writing this to the Christians at that time. 
Um, he, he, John was an eyewitness of Jesus, so he's proclaiming the truth of who Jesus is as a first account. And also during that time, there were Gnostics that had come to, uh, you know, to the scene, and so they were preaching a false doctrine saying that Jesus um, is separate from uh, the Christ, the Christ being the Messiah, and so that, that he wasn't actually God. So they were speaking against the deity of who Jesus is. And if Jesus isn't God, then, then there's no salvation for the world. And so the Gnostics denied the power of Jesus, just like we'll get into the specifics about that as there's other religions in the world that do that today. But we see here that this is written so that, um, the, that Christians, it says that they might not sin. Um, and, and so n- now we know that there's only one that is perfect and sinless, and that's God, Jesus Christ, Holy, the Holy Spirit. They're all one. Um, but we know that Jesus, he was perfect, and man, he was 100% man and 100% God. But we know that God um, is the only one who's perfect, uh, but there is a standard that we're to live by and in a way um, that we are to uh, live our life. We, we're, we're to live our life in a way it, it, to be determined not to be sinful, okay? So John's painting this picture of, of, of a life as a Christian. We, you know, we're, we're not to be sinful people. Um, and so John's writing this so that the believers that read this understand that there is a standard to live by. It's important for us to live in that fashion. Then we see where it says, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus Christ, who is righteous, he is perfect and just. He is our advocate between us and the Father. Um, I'm gonna give you a definition just so we understand this. And we, you, you know, we, we probably all of us know what the word advocate means. Um, and, and here, uh, the Greek word is also parakletos, which is the same word that uh, was given to the Holy Spirit. But in John here, the, the Lord, the, the Holy Spirit gives John this writing. He's saying that, that Jesus himself is the, is, is, is the advocate between us and the Father. So, and, and so the definition of advocate is one who pleads another's cause, okay? How many of you have ever been in trouble with the law? Please don't raise your hand. I'll raise my hand. Um, I, in the past, I've had to have a lawyer before. And what did that lawyer do? That lawyer knew the law and advocated for my rights between me and the judge. And the judge is the one that upholds the law. And the law is what upholds righteousness in our society, right doing. And so when you break the law, you get to stand before a judge in a courtroom and he has the authority to condemn you for what your penalty is or not condemn you. And you want a good lawyer that can, you know, speak your case and say that you really weren't as bad as the police officer said you were. I'm speaking of myself in my past. And so the same thing is what Jesus is in our lives pertaining to God who has all authority to condemn people and all authority to set people free. And Jesus stands in that place in the court of God on your behalf and on my behalf. And he pleads the case of God, I love them, I died for them, and I'm advocating for them. And so John writes this. That's why I say these first two verses, we can live in this forever. The other piece of an advocate, it's one who helps another by defending 
or comforting him. That's where Parakletos comes in, where the Holy Spirit is mentioned after the day of Pentecost, when Jesus says that another will come after me um, and, and, and he will be a part of your life. Jesus speaks about the Holy Spirit and, and when the Holy Spirit's spoken of, it's spoken of that he's our comforter. There's something special about um, the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. He comforts us. He gives us peace and rest. It's important for us to rely upon that. Romans chapter 8, verse 33 through 34 says this, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is, the, it is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us? Jesus himself intercedes for the believer. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost, those who come to God through him. Listen to this, you guys. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus Christ's purpose was to live for the intercession of mankind. That's why we see here where John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus came to set the world free from sin and death, from the bondage of sin and death. And John just encapsulate that in this first piece here. And you have to remember that there was these people that were preaching a false doctrine. And so we continue on where it says that, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. We don't use that word much. So I'm gonna read through what Easton's Bible Dictionary says about the word propitiation. It makes a comment, and I don't have the scriptures on the screen, but in Romans chapter 3, 25, that, that word is used. In Hebrew 9, verse 5, it's used as the mercy seat. The Greek word hilasturian is used. Um, it is the word employed uh, in the translation in Exodus 25, 17, and elsewhere as the equivalent for the Hebrew word uh, kaporeth, which means covering, Okay. I want us to understand what this propitiation is for us. This covering is, is the word in, 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 in the Old Testament is used as covering and it is used of the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Exodus 25 verse 21 and Exodus 30 verse six is where it's used as the lid, the covering of the Ark of the Covenant. This Greek word, hilastorian, came to denote not only the mercy seat or the lid of the ark, but also propitiation or reconciliation by blood. On the great day of atonement, the high priest carried the blood of the sacrifice he offered for all the people within the veil and sprinkled with it on the mercy seat, which is the covering of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant had the mercy seat on top and within was the Ten Commandments, and, and literally the presence of the Lord was there. And so the great priest, the high priest once a year uh, in the Old Testament would go in with once a year, it would be a, 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 a sacrifice for the sin offering of all of God's people. And he would throw the blood that was sacrificed on the Ark of the Covenant in the presence of God. And so God has always required blood to cover sin. 
And so there's a correlation here in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, and, 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 and the Old Testament when God presented and, 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 and placed his, his, his process in place with his people pertaining to the covering of their sin, and Jesus is that same thing. There's no difference from um, what happened in the, the seriousness in regards to the high priest going in. If the high, let, listen, you guys. If the high priest went into the, ark of the, in, into the Holy of Holies, no one else was ever allowed there. They, would have to, they tied a rope around his ankle in a bell. And if he was unclean or had something wrong in his life, he would die instantaneously. The bell would stop jingling and they would have to drag him out. God is absolutely holy. He is perfect. We cannot be in the presence of God we can't exist in that holiness because of our sinfulness. And Jesus himself advocates for us and is the propitiation for us between us and a holy God. He makes him approachable. The whole process of this for us to understand this is so that we know that Jesus is approachable, that God is approachable because we fall short. If Jesus and if God wasn't approachable by sinful people, we would be just, for, yeah. We would be helpless. And so we see here in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, and it's also mentioned in 4.10 that Christ is called the propitiation for our sins. Here a different Greek word is used. It's helosmos. Christ is, listen you guys, is the propitiation. Because by his becoming our substitute and assuming your obligation and my obligation, he expediated our guilt. He covered it by the various punishments which he endured. It's amazing what Jesus physically did for us pertaining to what God requires for the remission of sins. Right, Jesus said, for the joy that set before me, he endured the cross. The joy that he would allow you and I to have communion and intimate presence and communion with, with, with the true and living God. That was the joy that was set before Jesus. It's amazing what we receive. Then we can be done with Sunday, right? We're done. I mean, why, like I said, why even go past any of that? But I want to continue through the books as we can. Verse three, now by this, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And so John is continuing to paint this picture of a requirement of what a true Christian looks like. A Christian's life is marked by obedience to the word of God. That's the standard, okay? All of us are set that way. That's why we need to look at the word and we need to have accountability with other Christians. And if there's things in our life that need to change, then we need to change them through prayer. There's work that needs to be done as a Christian. There's people in this world that claim to be a Christian and yet their life doesn't line up with the word of God. John even gets pretty radical here and he says, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. It's black and white. It's, it's, there's no gray area, okay? And he's speaking of somebody who claims they know God. Unless you know Jesus, you don't know the true and living God. Let me finish. You can ask questions after. No, no, you're all good. It's, it's cool. We got a small environment here, so I understand. Um, 
So a person that claims to know Jesus and yet their life is marked with, now listen, marked with continual disobedience, they are not living their life in honesty, they are being fake, they're being false. But whoever keeps his word, verse five, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this, we know that we are in him. So there's this process that we're in. Whoever keeps his word, there's an outcoming of keeping God's word. His love is perfected in us. The Believer's Bible Commentary says this, the thought is that God's love toward us has been brought to its goal or perfected when we keep his word, it accomplishes its aim and reaches its end in producing obedience to God, obedience to him. There's a process that the word brings us through, okay? We're not left in the dark. We're not set on the roadside. We're not alone. God has given us his word so that we can know what it means to live as a Christian. That's why it says, you know, do this, don't do that in different parts. You get into Corinthians, the church of Corinth was so messed up. Paul wrote this amazing letter to the church of Corinth speaking about how they should live their life and how they should not live their life. So we can apply those things to our life as well. And that's why it's important to be in the Bible daily alone, letting the, the power of the word of God sift your heart and speak to you. It can't just be from some person standing behind a pulpit in a small room or a big room, or even in small Bible studies with people. Be alone with God. Read the word. Be with others and read the word. Have accountability. Our relationship as Christians, we're not designed, we're not designed to walk this walk out alone. Verse six, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So John's saying, look, there's, and, the, and this word abide, we're gonna look at this. He who says he abides in him, in other words, a person who says that he's abiding in God, he also ought to walk just as Jesus walked. So those that say that they abide or stay, this word abide means to stay, to remain, or to reside. So what John's saying is that those that remain or reside or stay Stay, that they those who are abiding in Christ, they should have a life that follows the example of Jesus Christ. And you're thinking, well, Jesus is perfect. How can I follow that example? Well, you're right. We can't. But here's what John's getting at. Jesus gave us a pattern of life in, in the Gospels, okay? And there's a pattern of life that we should live by, and Jesus led that life. So please know that this pattern is, it, like I mentioned, it's impossible for us to live in our own strength. There's no way. We need to absolutely rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to give our all to him without reserve. We need to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to not be reserved with giving our all to him. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse four, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. So this abide is staying so connected that our life depends on him. The same way a branch cannot live if removed from the tree. It's pretty obvious. I love Jesus gave down-to-earth practical um, uh, pictures and, 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 and realities in life so that we as human beings could understand. So he's saying basically, in, 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 in when, when Jesus said this, he's, he's saying, look, um, un unless you abide in me, you can't do these things. 
You see what the focus is? Like last week, the focus is Jesus. So we as Christians can't truly live if we are removed from the source of life, which is Jesus Christ. We need to abide in him. And that's a process. It's a daily thing. Sometimes it's moment by moment, you know? And when we let our guard down and we want to be satisfied the way we want to be satisfied, usually that means that we're on the edge of sinning. We want our own way. And God so lovingly allows us to come to him. That's why in John chapter, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if you confess your sins, that he's faithful and just forgive us for our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's not to say that we can just sin when we want. It's there so that, because God knew that we wouldn't be able to do this without needing his grace and mercy. Like my old friend Tony Magana would say, we've barely scratched the surface of the depth of God's grace towards us. I don't know that I'll ever fully understand the grace of God in my life until I see him face to face. Because I won't need it anymore when I see him face to face. You won't either. But man, while we're here on earth, I, I, I need God's grace. I need his mercy. So John's re reiterating these things to the Christians when the, 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 the Gnostics were trying to preach this false doctrine and he's continuing to, to build the facts about their reliance on Jesus to abide in the word, to abide in him. Verse 7, John continues, brethren, and see, he's, brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. So, so what John's saying here, this word that John was talking about was not a new thing, okay? Like I mentioned, the Gnostics were propagating a false Jesus and claimed what they were teaching was new and better than what the apostles had taught, who were eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. Um, and so, um, I lost my place. Okay. Um, this commandment that was not new had to do with the love that God called them to have for others. Uh, we'll establish this in these next couple of verses that he's speaking about loving others. Um, God establishes this in the law of the Old Testament, actually. This teaching Jesus also gave. So Leviticus 19 verse 18 says this, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So that is God speaking to his people through Moses in the Old Testament. Jesus speaking in John 13, 34 through 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. God will know that you're, I mean, the world will know that you are the Lord's disciples, not because of the church you attend, how much money you give, how long you read the Bible, how much you pray or how godly your house might look clean wise or any of those things, but it's if you love other people. John gets into pretty seriousness here. He says, again, a new commandment I write to you, which uh, thing is true, 
in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So John's saying the love of God that was given to those in the Old Testament was God's law for the Jewish people. Now this new commandment was not something created as new, but more it was fulfilled and lived out in a thorough and in, in, in and through and by Jesus Christ. So God gave this commandment in the Old Testament to love your neighbor as yourself, but Jesus fulfilled it and lived it. See, God himself walked among people and actually fulfilled what God told the Old Testament. And so that was the new thing that John's talking about here. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him being capital H and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And so Jesus was the embodiment of this loving others. He was love. He is love. So before Jesus Christ, this type of love for others was not seen or experienced the way that God explained for it to happen. No one had an example of God doing that in their midst. It was just in the law. So Jesus Christ embodies love. He is love and he is God. And so we see the true love of God in and through Jesus and experience this love as his children. It is a mark of a Christian to love your brother and sister. To love The love of God is in all believers. It is the mark of a true believer. This causes the darkness of hatred and bitterness and unforgiveness to fade away. In the bright shining light of the love of Jesus in our lives, who is the true light, all darkness begins to fade away. So that's what John's saying here. When, because darkness is passing away and true light is already shining. And we see here in verse nine, he who says he is in the light and here's, here's how we know that what he's speaking of. He says, here's he who says he's in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. So there's a defining moment. And Jesus speaking in Matthew 5, 21 through 29, you have heard that it is, that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. And then Jesus took it even a little further because you know, hey, you know, if you're gonna murder someone, you're gonna be judged by God for killing someone, right? That's pretty simple. But I love how Jesus would uncover all the, the uh, sinfulness of a person's heart, right? It, the word does that. He's cool like that. He reveals the depths of us, right? We think we can be sneaky, but then Jesus, you know, he, we, we can't be in the, in the midst of a true and living God that sees all things. Verse Matthew 5, 22, Jesus continues, says, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the, of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. So in verse 22, where it says, Raka, and it says, you fool, Jesus is even speaking about slandering people and cussing at people and having this attitude that is negative in a way of hatred and bitterness and unforgiveness and unloving. Verse 23 continues, said, therefore, if you bring your gift, listen to this, you guys, this can, I remember um, a, a, a pastor gave this message once 
Clark and he would say, hey, if you got an issue with somebody, I have my cell phone and you need to go call them right now and get right with them so that you're right with God. So I'll say that to you guys. If you guys have an issue with someone and the Holy Spirit saying you need to get right with them, I have a cell phone right here and you can use it if you have to to get right with God because listen to this, verse 23 of Matthew chapter five. And this again, I'm bringing this up because this is Jesus' teaching about loving others where John says that if you hate your brother, then, then it, that, 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 that the light of the Lord isn't in you. But Jesus said in verse 23 of Matthew five, it continues, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And you know what's interesting is the flow of, a, of responsibility in that is that the person who's at the altar, he's not the one who has the problem. It's the person that has a problem against him. So the person's at the altar thinking they're right with God, but yet God's saying, hey, if somebody has something against you, you need to go talk with them. Verse 25 that Jesus continues in Matthew, agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. So Jesus paints a picture. Look, you better get right with those who have something against you because they can actually hold you accountable to those things. In other words, as a Christian, we need to love others and we need to have short accounts with those people around us. If you've offended somebody or somebody's offended you, or if you even feel like you've offended somebody, call them and say, hey, did I do anything wrong? I've had to do that before because I carry grudges. I'm a broken human being. I've been hurt by people in the church and leaders in the church and pastors. And I've had to wrestle with the fact that I have bitterness that builds inside of me because I'm the one that's broken, not them. And God's, I get convicted and I've had to actually apologize to people when they've done nothing wrong. It's all inside of me. It's all false expectations, but I had something against them. And so I love, Jesus is very practical. And so this new thing, Jesus walked out what real love was like. He talked about what real love was like. I love that. Not just some philosophy, but reality of how we as human beings need to operate with other human beings. Why? Because how we act and who we are and what comes out of our life is supposed to shine the light on who Jesus is. Verse 10, back in John, 1 John chapter 2 John continues in expounding on this. He said, he who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. So in other words, when you love others, you're not a stumbling block. You are a light and not a tool for the darkness of sin. Hatred and unforgiveness is darkness. It breeds darkness. Love is light. When you love others, there is a light in your life and relationship with others, you know? There's people in my life that, that are this type of person. My wife's one of them. I'm not trying to put her on a pedestal, but she loves people. She loves people in spite of her. She loves people in spite of her. Well, I've had to tell her in the past, Gina, you need to really stand up for yourself in this area. And it's because of what God's done in her life. And that's an example for me of not being critical and hatred or frustrated towards people. And so even in my own marriage, the, Lord, the Lord's relationship with my wife is used in my life to point to Jesus. God is so smart, he knows how to work in human beings that are following him that actually causes human beings to follow him even more. That's why the body of Christ is so important. 
You know, that's why when people say, well, I don't need to go to church. Well, I, don't, I, don't, I disagree with that. Church isn't about listening to somebody. Church is about building relationships with people, being available to other people that are Christians that are working the same path you are, working out your faith. God's word says, work out your faith with fear and trembling. We are all fear and trembling before a holy God working this thing out. It's a process. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. This came to mind while studying this, uh, uh, correlating with verse 10. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Again, the word of God has a standard that we are to live our lives by. And when we can't or don't or fall, the grace of God and the mercy of God is there for us to confess our sins to him. I really believe that God would rather see a person who's always broken, working, trying to get rid of things in their life than somebody who's stubborn and prideful and just keeps walking out sin in their life. Don't let the, don't let the shame of sin keep you from God. Jesus bore that on the cross. Verse 11 of 1 John 2. But he who hates his brother, this is just crazy, man. He's just like, this is, this is like so serious. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John paints such a serious picture here about what hatred does to a person. They're in darkness. They're blind to the truth of God. They do not know where they are going in life. They are spiritually blind. At the time, the Gnostics hated Christians. They hated them. So they were, and, and, but the, God's word tells us that those who, who walk in this way, they're blinded by the, from the Lord. They're in darkness, literal darkness, spiritual darkness. Continuing verse 12, I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you little children because you have known the father. So what John is doing is he's giving a, a, a overview of the different age groups within the body of Christ where he says little children, it, it doesn't mean uh, ch children like my children, like my little ones that I have. It, the literal translation is born ones or born again. So John is addressing all Christians, all that have been born again through the blood of Jesus Christ. So he says, it, where it says, uh, children, because your sins have forgiven you for his name's sake. So all that have been born of Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ covers them. Our sins are forgiven because of Christ's name's sake, not ours. We could do nothing to earn this. It is because of him and him alone. There's nothing else that gives us that. Praise the Lord. And it's a finished work. It doesn't have to happen again. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he had the agony of every single human being ever created. All of their sins upon him. All of them. All at once. It's amazing. And yet, he thought of you and I individually. The love of God is just, it's just amazing. The love of Jesus. 
And then John addresses fathers, and he says, you know, um, because you have known him who is from the beginning. So what he's saying here, the, those that have walked a mature walk with Christ, they have known him from the beginning. And then he goes and he says, and he, he addresses the young man, and, and, and those are the ones that have strength and, and wrestling with the issues of life and faith. And, and so they, they're the ones that, that have overcome the wicked one. And then he, he again says, I write to you little children because you have known the Father. And so little children, those that are babes in the faith, where he speaks that in the end of verse 13. So the, the, the um, little children, because you have known the Father. He's speaking of babes in the faith, young Christians. And, and in verse 14, John repeats about the fathers, but gives a little more description pertaining to the young men. Verse 14 says, I have written to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are strong. Listen, you guys, this is so key to our life. And the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. When we find ourselves in places in our life that are sinful and we can't seem to get out, I, I could guarantee that we aren't using God's word. We're trying to do things on our own because God's word is powerful and it's able to slay the wicked one. And ladies, this doesn't exclude you here. You have to remember that in the, in, the, in, the, in the way that writings were back then, they addressed the men of things. This in no way, shape, or form is sexist. It's just the way the writing was. But I want to kind of expound on verse 14 here. Young men are those that are conquerors. They have overcome the evil one, the devil, Satan, and his tactics because that they are strong, not in their own strength. Um, it's normal in a young man to be strong, but because of the word of God that abides in them, this is what caused them to be able to thwart the evil one. So John was using the correlation difference between little children and men that have walked with God for a long time and then what it was like in, 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 in young people's lives, you know. That's why the age group, you know, that would go to war is usually was 18 to 25, you know, because they could endure, because they could fight. So John's using this picture here and saying those that were young. And it was because the word of God abided in them. And that word abide, it means is continuing to be in them. It is a statement of action. For God's word to abide in you has a placement of substance. So it, it, it had a placement of substance in their lives, not just head knowledge, but in such a way as to be used to wage war against the enemy in such a way that the wicked one is overcome by the victory that is had by the word of God being used in and through this Christian. This is for us today. It is the word of God that Jesus himself used to defeat Satan when he was tempted. So if Jesus Christ being God used the word of God, the Bible to defeat the enemy, and John is telling the readers that the young men that had the word of God abiding in them overcame the wicked one because of the way the word of God was in their life, then for us today, we have been given the same promise as Christians that if the word of God abides in us, that we 
can overcome the wicked one. That if we allow the word of God to abide in our lives, to take center stage, to abide in us, we too will overcome the enemy. We wage war from victory, not from failure. And it's from the victory of Jesus Christ, the blood that he shed on the cross. The victory that's in Jesus is ours. And we need to allow the word of God to abide in our life, to take place in our life, to be planted in us so that when things come up in our life, that that's what we go to first. And God, forgive me for I don't always do that. John continues in verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John continues to paint a picture that you aren't to be part of the world. Don't love the world. My friends, do not allow things of this world to mark your life. Be careful what you associate with. John is saying, look, if you love the things of the world, then the love of the Father literally is not in you. There's gotta be a differentiation in a person's life, what they associate with. There's a distinction in a believer's life. We need to evaluate as Christians what we allow into our lives, our homes, on our phones, on our TVs, where we put our money at. We need to evaluate what we support in our life. And I'm not talking about government. California can go to hell in a handbasket, but that doesn't dictate our relationship with Jesus. I hear people saying, hey, you know what? Bring God back into our country. Well, maybe God's plan is for our country to fall apart so that the world system that's already panned out in Revelation and in Ezekiel and Daniel needs to come to fruition because maybe the U.S. is in the way. Our salvation is not in government. It's in Christ alone. So the question is, are you living in the world and in Jesus? Do you have one foot in and one foot out? And it's hard. It's not easy. But there's a standard. I didn't write it. This is convicting for me. I don't stand here going, oh, yes, I am perfect, Brian. <laughs> no. I'm faced with failure and sin and destruction in my life, and I keep thinking, Lord, I am in a land of death, and I am a dead person. How in the world can I keep going? And God faithfully carries me even when I feel that way. I mean, lately, I've been dealing, I guess, with panic attacks and, 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 and fearful thoughts. I mean, I went to the hospital on Friday, you know, because my blood pressure was going up and down, up and down for no reason. I was cooking a tortilla. What the heck is that? And I'm praying in my room, God, change this. It didn't change. I go to the hospital, all my blood works fine, the EKG's fine, my heart's not dying. I don't know. It's stupid. But it doesn't go away. And I, it, maybe, it's, maybe, maybe God wants me to rely more upon him in my mind. I don't know. I mean, I used to be a guy that would, you know, ride around on a street bike at 130 miles an hour all day long. I won't, I'm, I'm afraid if I get on one, I'll have some weird attack, fall off the bike. You know, we get old and get different. I don't know. My wife's like, oh, maybe it's spiritual. I don't know what it is. But my life needs to be relying upon the Lord, and so does yours, because <laughs> there's things in our life that we can't change. I don't know why I got off on that. But John's saying, look, don't be part of the world. Verse 16, for all that, this is, this is amazing, you guys, listen. God doesn't hide anything from us. 
He, he's very transparent. He shows us what's up. For all that is in the, because I want truth. Do you want truth? Do you, do you want people to lie to you? No, no. Liar, liars are horrible. And I don't, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to be in a relationship with something that lies to me, you know? Um, and so God's so honest with us and his word is honest. So verse 16 of John chapter, or first John chapter two, for all, John continues to say, so for all, he says, don't be a part of the world, right? But then he says, for all that is in, he gives this definition, for all that is, I love how the Holy Spirit gave him this, for the, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. What a standard. Like we can look at this and go, okay, that's not Jesus. That's not Jesus. That's not Jesus. The world and all that it has to offer is not of God. In fact, it is literally, it's, it's antichrist. It's against Jesus. That's what antichrist is. The, the Bible talked about, Jesus even talked about the, the spirit of antichrist. There's, there's a spirit that's against Christ that's been in the world from the beginning. It's not of the Father or of Jesus Christ, this, 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 this world that we live in. I want to read a little portion of Genesis. It's somewhat simple conversation uh, between two people, um, but it had a, a, a very detrimental consequences, and you'll see here uh, how this ties into 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. And this is Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. And this is, you know, at the very beginning. You had Adam and Eve. God gave him everything. God gave Adam all the animals. He named all of them, named everything. God even gave man purpose. As men, we need a purpose. And then God said, hey, you know, it's not good for you to be alone. I don't know how he came to that determination and he couldn't find a, anybody great for him. And so he, you know, knocked Adam out, took a rib and made a woman. And he said, woman, whoa, man. So I'm, you know. Adam was like, okay, this is something new. I like that. So the first marriage, it was great. God ordains marriage. Marriage is beautiful and amazing, orchestrated and ordained by him. But then we see here in Genesis chapter three, and, and it's important to know that Adam most likely was with Eve. It's assumed by commentators that he was with her. But now in Genesis three, one through six, read with me on the screen or in your Bible. You don't, don't read it out loud. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, stop right there. Why is she talking to a snake? Didn't she think it was odd in the first place? So something, some people believe maybe she had had conversations with him before, okay? Because it's really strange that the scripture just gives us this snapshot no other snapshot about her conversation with this serpent, who is the devil, prior to this, but she like has this full-on conversation with him. So in our lives, we shouldn't start talking with our temptation or the enemy because it really leads to bad things. Anyway, so uh, God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree in the garden. Um, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, this is Eve saying, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you, lest you die. Now, Eve misquoted scripture. God said you shouldn't partake of it, not about touching it. Verse four, then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. 
Hmm, really? Okay. Got Eve thinking. And he continues, says, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he started the thought process in Eve. And so when the woman saw, listen, here's the catch. Here's the correlation between 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. And so I want you to understand that the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life was what caused man to fall from God in the very first place. And if two human beings that were in perfection, literally, with God, walked with him as you and I would see each other right now, yet fell because of those things, how are we to be able to overcome those things without relying upon the Lord? So John's writing here, look, this is what the world is like. Don't be a part of it. Verse 17, and the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So the world out there and all of these things, it's going away. I love that. The, the Lord shows us in the promises of who he is and what's gonna happen, that, that the world that we live in, the, the world system, the antichrist system, it's all going away. There's one day those things will not exist at all. So don't live for them. They're, they're temporal and fleeting. But all those that act out the will of God, listen, act out, not just listen. All those that act out the will of God in their life will live forever, remaining with God forever. God, God's a God of action. He's not passive. Christianity is, a, is, is, is not a spectator sport. God calls all of us to act forward in our relationship with him, to walk it out. Verse 18, little children, it is, this, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour. So Antichrist, like I mentioned, it's anything that's against or denies the deity of Jesus, saying uh, he is not God and that he is not the only way to heaven and that he is not the only way for forgiveness of sins. <clears throat> Verse 19, they went out from us. So now John's saying, look, you had, there were people that were with us, okay? They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were, that none of, them were of us. So there were those that started out acting like believers, uh, but were not true to God's word, um, and they followed other doctrines. True faith in Jesus Christ is a lasting, enduring thing. It's permanent. There may be seasons where it doesn't seem like things are right, but if somebody has a true relationship with Jesus, it's something permanent. Verse 20, I'm sorry, verse 19. No, verse 20, sorry. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and that no, and that no lie is of the truth. So what John's saying here is that those that have Jesus Christ in them have an anointing that comes from him. This is the Holy Spirit. 
A believer is given spiritual discernment. That's what he's talking about, about knowing all things. It's not you know everything, you don't ever need to be taught anything. It's when you become a Christian, the Spirit of God lives inside of you instantaneously when you give your heart to the Lord and you are given spiritual discernment. Believer's Bible commentary gives a good insight into this. It says this, when a person is saved, he receives the indwelling Holy Spirit and he, being the Holy Spirit, enables the believer to discern between truth and error. When John tells his young readers, you know all things, he does not mean this is an absolute sense. I mean, he does not mean this in an absolute sense. That'd be ridiculous. I mean, I'd be a trillionaire. So would you. You'd know everything. It is not that you'd win every game show. It is not that they have perfected knowledge, but rather that they have the capacity to recognize what is true and what is not true. Thus, the youngest, simplest believer has the capacity of discernment in divine things that an unsafe philosopher would not have. The Christian can see more on his knees than the world than the worldling can see on his tiptoes. In the physical realm, check this out, you guys. In the physical realm, when a baby is born, he is at once endowed with all the faculties of the human race. He has eyes, hands, feet, brains. He never gets these later. Although they grow and develop, the whole person is there at, the, at first, at, the, at their birth. The whole person is there. So it is with a person when they are born again. He has at that moment all the faculties that he will ever have as a Christian, although there will be endless possibilities for developing them. It's profound. Verse 22, who is a liar, but he, John continues, he says, but who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is antichrist who denies the father and the son. Whoever denies the son does not have the father either. He who acknowledges the son has the father also. So in other words, those that deny Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the one and only, the one that came to save the world from its sins, those people that do not believe in Jesus Christ as the true and living word of God, they are liars. John goes on to explain even further that they can say that they believe in God or say that they believe in a God, and yet if they do not believe in the deity of Jesus Christ, they do not know God. Like I'd mentioned in the past, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and other religions, if you have conversations with them, you know, they're nice people, they're great people. But if you have conversation with them and you actually start speaking about who is Jesus and you open the Bible and you look at what the Bible says of who Jesus is, they're Mormon of the Book of Mormon and the Jehovah's Witness doctrines. None of them proclaim Jesus as God at all. I've talked with uh, East Indians and their religion. Jesus is a prophet. They'll recognize him as a person but deny the deity of God which is how the Gnostics were. So John is saying, look, um, if those that deny Jesus Christ, their religion is false. They're liars. It's a pretty serious thing. The key is Jesus. Always. It's always the key. The Old Testament points to him. 
And the New Testament fulfills what the Old Testament pointed about him. Verse 24, therefore let, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If, you, if, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. So what John is saying to the believers, look, what the apostles have taught and what I am teaching you now, remember John was an eyewitness of Jesus Christ, so were the apostles, let that be abiding in you. Abide in the word of God. Stay close to the Bible, you guys. Let let it dictate your life. Let it be the filter in your life. You know, this is the idiot filter. It filters the idiocracy of my life, and it'll filter other people in life that are untrue. Idiots that say, and I don't mean that in a harsh way, okay? You know, but it, but it filters those things. Um, and so John's saying in verse 24, let, let that abide in you, um, which you heard from the beginning. That piece where it says, which you heard from the beginning is speaking of the word. Um, and if what you've heard from the beginning abides in you, in other words, if the word of God is abiding in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. There's that correlation. We can't have a relationship with God or Jesus and, and not have um, the word of God living in our lives. Our greatest safety as Christians is to always keep close the word of God, the Bible. We should test everything by looking at Scripture. Um, what does the word of God say? We need to test everything. Man, test me. I, I, this is the scariest thing in the world is to stand up and do this. You know, I'm always afraid. Like I'm going to, that was the worst thing. When I first started doing this, that I was going to say the wrong thing and, and be condemned and all these things. And then, you know, come to a place that God's calling you to do these things. You rely upon him. But man, to rightly divide the word of truth in season and out of season, God's word says that. And so to do that, we need to know it. We need to read it. We need to spend time in it. We need to let it be in us. Man, forgive us, Lord, for not doing that. We're so distracted by so many things. Gina's going through this study with the women and, you know, it's about idolatry. You know, if you pick your phone up in the morning or a computer or news or anything else, and guess what? You're worshiping that first. We're to give the Lord the first fruits of our life, our day. I don't know. I, I don't know about you, but I'm horrible at that. I'm so distracted, you know. We need to, perp I mean, it, would, you, would you be distracted at work if you, you know, had a, a job you went to, right? Would you tell your boss, I'm sorry, I didn't show up today. I, I, I got distracted. <laughs> no. But yet the most important thing in our life, which is the word of God, and it's alive and sharp and into its sword and able to help our life, are we telling God, who really is our ultimate boss, oh, I'm sorry, I got distracted. I'm not trying to be critical or harsh, but it's like, <laughs> maybe if I spent more time in my personal walk with God and you too, that there'd be certain things in my life that wouldn't be there, you know? It's easy to be distracted. Verse 25, and this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. It's amazing. We have a promise from God. We have eternal life from him. That we know this because we abide in his word. His word tells us that. His word tells us about these things, this eternal life. It's the free gift from God that we receive through Jesus Christ. No other way, and uh, there's no other way um, that we're able to receive this. The, and the only way that we understand about this is we learn it through the word of God. 
Verse 26, we'll, we'll close soon. These things I've written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. So John's writing this to the, to the believers, uh, warning them about the Gnostics who were trying to deceive them, the false doctrine that they were preaching. Verse 27, but the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. So there's this anointing in all believers' life um, that is never taken away. The Holy Spirit can never, ever, ever be removed from a Christian, ever. It's impossible. We receive the Holy Spirit of God. He abides in a Christian. If God gave it to us and he's the one that allowed it to come to us and he placed it in us, the only person that could ever take it away is God and God's word says that he'll abide with us, that he gives the Holy Spirit to us, that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. So the Holy Spirit is not leaving you. You didn't put him in there. God did. You can't take him out of you either. The Holy Spirit teaches us concerning all things pertaining to the Lord. He is true. In the same reality that God is absolute truth, so is the Holy Spirit. Just as we have been taught by him, we abide in him. And again, this is not saying that we do not need teachers. God has raised people uh, up to be teachers of his word. Ephesians chapter four, verse 11 and 12 says this, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Okay, so even though John was saying you don't need teachers, he's speaking about how, um, not, not teachers as in uh, being taught the word. Sorry, I gotta go back to that. Uh, that was verse 27. Okay, when he's saying that uh, and you do not need that anyone teach you, he's speaking about um, the Holy Spirit abiding in you as a Christian. Um, and, and then he goes on, he says, but the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, which is the Holy Spirit, and is true, so the Holy Spirit is true, and is not a lie, he's not a lie, and just um, as it has taught you, you will abide in him. Um, so it's amazing what the Lord gives us. Again, the Gnostics profess to have additional truth um, but John is saying here that there is no need for additional truth added to God. Uh, with the word of God in our hands, the spirit of God in our hearts, we have all that we need for instruction in the truth of God. N not the Book of Mormon, not the Book of Jehovah's Witnesses or any other so-called holy book. We don't need anything else. We have what we need. Verse 28 and 29, and, it, and now little children abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So as Christians, we have confidence and we are not to be ashamed when Christ comes again. He will come again. And we are not to be ashamed when he comes because we're his. 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. So God is righteousness. He is the absolute definition of righteousness. Those who practice righteousness are of God. And that word diakaios, Diakaios, sorry, it's hard to pronounce. Uh, it means, and, and that, it, it, that's the word righteous in, in, um, in Greek. It, 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 and, it, and, and that word righteous, it means correct or righteous, uh, innocent, um, just, justice, 
Um, it, it, it means an uprightness. And so God himself is righteous, um, and those that practice his righteousness were born of him. So verse 29, if you know he is righteous, in other words, if you know that God is righteous, and you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. So you see, again, John bundles it all back up to the correlation of God's character and how Christians should exemplify God's character. And it's through his word and by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's amazing what we're given. And we, we don't, when Jesus comes again, we're not to be ashamed because Christ is our propitiation. He stood before us and God. And it's an amazing thing. 